1: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter
0: feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs)
1: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness In a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same. Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell.
0: Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host Ella James.
1: My guest today is Roy Sikoff, uh, the author of Lax Self Control: True Stories I Waited Until My Parents Died to Tell." But Roy and I actually met about five years ago now. No,
0: no, it was it was it was uh, the spring of two thousand fifteen.
1: You even rem- that's amazing. Yes. So I voiced I voiced something for you for HuffPost Live. Yeah. Um, which you were you were running at that stage
0: yes we did we, well, it was a spin-off of that it's called Huff Post show that, right and it was basically an hour-long show kind of like uh, the Daily show or John yes. Oliver yeah sort of our our are uh, dipping our toe in the late night comedy world
1: right yeah so my claim to fame was that I was on the same episode as the late Florence Henderson
0: yeah what a what a sweet lady right what a sweet lady that, that was a, well, that was a great episode there was some really funny stuff in that yeah. she, you know because she she was so good to go I don't know if you want to talk about this but she yeah, would, yeah, yeah. she was so good to go you know now, um, I was laying in bed, and I think this was Thursday morning, mm-hmm. and we did the show live Friday night. Yeah. And I was laying in bed, and I was thinking, man, we've got Florence Henderson. And right at that time, I don't know if you're an American sports fan, but uh, Tom Brady, who's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, there was the big thing called Deflate Gate. And there was this big oh. thing about whether he had uh, shrunk the size of the footballs that he used in the championship game. It was right. this big uh, outroar. And he had done a press conference uh, that was ridiculous, because all he talked about was his balls. And it was just this constant talking about his balls, and it was very, very funny. And I was laying in bed... What mean? He's not that smart. No. No, no. 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 And, and, and that's what made it so funny. Yeah. And so I was, I was laying in bed, and I thought, ah, oh, you know, that's interesting, uh, and then it hit me. Brady. I have Carol Brady. Her role on the Brady Bunch. I said, "Brady, I- I've got to have the real Brady news conference, with with her talking about balls and grabbing balls and holding balls and touching balls and balls." And so I thought, oh, and she kind of liked being a little saucy. Yeah. She, kinda, well, yeah, she was well, yeah, she's kind of like the Betty White, you know. Uh, oh, and she was almost, I mean, she was like the R-rated Betty White. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so she liked, yeah. she liked being like the frisky octogenarian, you yes. know, and so uh, I, I wrote up this little sketch where basically she comes out as Tom Brady, dressed the same way, everything the same, and she just talks about her balls, how much she likes balls, and everybody knows I knows like big balls. I don't like my balls, because he supposedly made the balls smaller, easier to hold. Right. She likes your balls big as big as you can get them. And so I wrote this little you know, double entendre filled, silly thing, and sent it to her manager, and he said, love this, great. When do you want to do it? I said, well, you know, can you come in tomorrow early before, you know, we taped, uh, we didn't tape, we went live at 6 p.m. Can you come in like at 11 in the morning? She came in, and we did a great, perfect green screen that looked exactly the same, the same hat, everything the same, and she killed it. And she was so funny, and I just adored her, you know. And then she invited me to come see her that night. The next night, she was doing some, you know, Broadway fundraiser. Mm. The average age of the performer was 112. You know, it was like all these very, very old Broadway performers, and they were mm, not that great. She killed it. Yeah, she absolutely crushed it, and it just it, it devastated me when she died. Just you know. Well,
1: it was very. Yeah. Like it was a, very close. Within to a that. year.
0: Within a year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So sad. She was. She was so lovely and so much fun.
1: With your with your writing, would you characterize yourself? I mean, clearly you are. You're an author now, but. Would you characterize yourself as a writer from a career perspective? Is that the, the primary I have, thing or what are you?
0: Yeah, what am I? That's what a good question. You? That's a really good That's, question. What are you
1: having for lunch? And what do you want to do for the rest yeah, of your life? Exactly. The big I
0: can lay it all out. Existential truths coming yeah. at you. Um, you. No, you know, let's go back. Let's flash back and we'll bring this question around, the uh, circuitous route. So as I mentioned in the book, in the opening of the book as I talk about what led me to write the book, I've I said that... Uh, while researching some of these stories, I went back and found a trove of of report cards that my mother had kept. And I found one from nursery school. So I was like four years old. And the teacher's comment was, Roy has a delightful sense of humor that is enjoyed by all, including his teacher. Then I found my first grade report card, uh, seven years old, and it said, Roy enjoys creative writing and should be encouraged to do more. And so if you look at it, by the age of seven, I was a funny writer. Yes. And yet it took me 40 years of existential angst to figure out what the hell I should be doing. Are you kidding me? Well, you know. I mean, I always wrote. I yeah. always wrote. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't identify myself this way or that way uh, necessarily. I, I started writing poetry very young and got attention for that. Uh, I remember in fifth grade I was asked to read my poem about uh, racial tolerance in front of the whole school. And uh, then I wrote a poem about the Vietnam War, because I'm a child of the 60s, and um, technically the 50s. I was born in 1959, but I grew up in the 60s. Yes. And uh, so I wrote a poem about the Vietnam War, and got a lot of attention for that, and uh, um, I was actually asked to come and speak at a college creative writing class as a 13-year-old, sort of demonstrate creative expression and what they should be doing, you know. Uh, uh, so I, I always did that. And then uh, the, I got a little bit older and discovered performing mm. and sort of went in that direction for a while. Mm. Uh, was that stand-up or acting? Well, this was like early school plays, okay, you me. know. Uh, I remember I got very lucky. I was in an, a drama class. It all started actually in sixth grade when Mr. Burchansky who was my sixth grade teacher, <clears throat> they were having a talent show. And I had no discernible, demonstrable talent. Do you know, By that I mean, I, I couldn't sing. You were a singer, I, you were a dancer, I didn't. Yeah. okay. I, 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 did, I didn't play any instruments. Yeah. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do that. I wasn't a gymnast. Uh, but he came up to me and he said, uh, Seacoff, you never shut up. Maybe we can put that to good use. Do you wanna be the MC of the talent show? So I thought, okay. You know. And so basically, I introduced acts and sort of just did shtick in between. Like it wasn't prepared shtick. it was just I came back and just made funny comments about what the person had just done. right? Or, you know, something like that. I remember one time very specifically there, not one time, I remember this one act, it was a girl and she was a gymnast and she did all kinds of hyper limber stuff, you Mm. know, bending over backwards and touching her head to her feet. And and I just kind of came out and I did like a Carson, you know, just a mm, mm, all right then. And it got a huge laugh. You know, and I was like, okay, that's good.
1: It's a, that kind (laughs) of um, reward is addictive. Oh my God. Right? Was there a point in your career where you realize that that actually wasn't what you were after.
0: Yeah. So basically I did that. So all through high school, uh, you know, I was uh, the president of thespians, you know, the drama club and all the stupid jokes that came along with that. You're a thespian? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, I like girls. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Very funny. You know, <clears throat> moronic seventh grade humor. Uh, so, I did, so I did plays mm. and did all that stuff. And then I went to college and started as a drama major. And did very well and got a lot of lead roles at the University of Miami where I, where I went to school. And, um, but it dawned on me that, you know, that seemed a little limiting. Mm-hmm. And I always loved films. So I thought, why don't I switch my major from theater to film and I could become a director and a writer and cast myself in my own movies. Okay. Woody Allen at the time was obviously mm-hmm. the great glory for all young Jew boy uh, want to be writer-directors, mm-hmm. you know, and so uh, he's now been besmirched but at the time obviously Woody Allen, you know, was, was the gold standard. Yeah. Uh, so I started taking film and I loved the freedom, you know, because obviously having come from the theater, you know, you're you're very much limited to one or two sets. Suddenly you could cut, you could end a scene, you could start, you know, so I loved that, the idea of that. So I still was doing that. And I actually moved out to Los. I'm giving you the long version, but no, I moved. I, I moved out to Los Angeles. It's a long interview. So yes.
1: People are in their cars. Yes. Think four hundred and five.
0: Okay. Oh, we're well, just stuck in traffic. Yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry for you. I feel very yeah. bad. We could be like the Californians. Yeah, take the four hundred and five, dude. Yeah. Uh, don't take the one hundred and one. Right. It's yeah. my favorite.
1: <laughs> I digress. Yes. Go but back.
0: Anyway, so um, I came out here to go to. USC Film School, right. the legendary film school, home of George Lucas and John Milius and all these, you know, mm. uh, movers and shakers of the of the 70s. And um, I was doing that, didn't love the school, didn't love the experience there, but was sort of, you know, and then a friend of mine had started a magazine, uh, sort of a free, free giveaway that was sort of half Nash Lampoon, half Rolling Stone yeah. about comedy. And... So he said, uh, you want to help? And I was going to film school. I said, yeah, I'll help. And then I started doing more of that. And I was enjoying the writing of that. And, you know, and then I was actually a, a pretty decent writer. And so they're like, we need somebody to write up this interview with uh, Robin Williams. And they're like, Roy, you should go, because you're the best writer. And I was like, OK. So I went and interviewed Robin Williams, hung out with him for a couple of days, and started doing the, while I was going to film school. And I decided this was more fun than that. At the same time, I was still trying to do a little acting. I had done some stand-up, mm. you asked. Uh, I had won a contest in college, the funniest man on campus. Because um, I had do, never done stand-up, I would yeah. just been an actor, but I loved stand-up, and yes. I loved Pryor and Carlin and Lenny Bruce. You know, they're all seminal performers. So I did some stand-up uh, and enjoyed it, but you know, I, there's something about that life that didn't appeal to me. Mm. I saw it, I saw what it was, I saw that it was, you know, you wait all day for your ten minutes uh, at the comedy store, or at the improv, if you're lucky, usually it's some hole in the wall. You know, where are we about cursing? You know,
1: oh, cursing's great. Yeah,
0: so some shithole. You yeah. know, uh, which is actually a deli, and they put a microphone up, and three people stand. That's really what you're doing. You know, but even that, even the comedy store, you wait all day, and then you, and then you stay up all night drinking with your buddies, dissecting. It's not
1: conducive to any kind of healthy lifestyle. Exactly.
0: And, you know, and I already had the makings of, you know, deep neuroses and anxiety. So that wasn't going to help me, you know, having come from a deeply neurotic family. So um, uh, yes, that means Jewish. Yes. Jewish, uh, they're sort of synonymous in some ways. Oh I Uh, think it's,
1: what you're saying is very common. Have you seen Hannah Gadsby's Nanette on Netflix? No. Okay. You need to watch it and then we'll email next week. Okay. Okay. It covers "Ah." this. Yeah. Yeah. I've just left stand up. I mean, public announcement everyone. Um, I'm doing my last comedy show in July uh, because she wraps everything up into a tight little bow yeah. as to as to the self-deprecation, the self-humiliation, the point of comedy. At what point? That whole uh, getting your therapy by being yeah. on stage, yeah. and you just think, yeah. "Oh, you know what? Mm, no." What and was
0: I was also I had the arrogance of youth. Which, you know, screwed me up in a a number of ways and one of the ways was that I was delusional enough to believe that show business was a meritocracy. Um, So I thought, you know what, (laughs) I'll just do good work and my good work will lead to my success. Yeah. I cuz I never And you're
1: a white male.
0: Well, what well, could
1: go wrong? Well,
0: I never really thought about Well, we didn't <laughs> Nobody have did we didn't have the idea days. of privilege in those days, no, you know? I know. And in fact, I actually found it to be a detriment in some ways. Yeah. But by am obviously wildly privileged in every way you could possibly imagine, you know, just being born uh, in America. You know, just being born in this century, just being born to parents who, you know, all every every everything. So I'm Absolutely. not I'm no sad violins for Roy Seagoth at all. But, you know, as George Carlin talks about in some of his earlier uh, bits uh, as a comedian, you know, minority cultures or niche cultures give you something very interesting to talk about as opposed to the same shit that, you know, I mean, how many funny Jewish guys are there? Oh, none. What a breakthrough. You're the first one we've ever seen, Roy off. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, I, and, you know, I mean, Chris Rock. Fantastic, he's certainly in the top 10 of all time, right? Mm -hmm. But he gets a lot of mileage out of his rhythm, which is a very uh, preacher, churchy rhythm, you know? When he's stalking around the stage Mm -hmm. and he's pacing back and forth and he's sort of testifying in some ways, you know? When he's doing this famous bit about O.J., you know? I'm not saying that it's okay that he killed her, but I understand it. It's a very specific rhythm. I couldn't do that rhythm, right? that would be not only wildly inappropriate, inappropriate yep. but, but, and so- But it also wasn't uniquely you.
1: Well, correct. And to find your authenticity-
0: It's very hard. Is
1: the meaning of life, ladies and yes. gentlemen, but, yeah.
0: So it's very hard, you know? Yeah. Uh, but so Carlin talks about that, you know, he, mm-hmm. there, there was a period where he felt like he was black, uh, you know, and, and was on the streets with the guys. He liked doing the dozens. It was much more interesting than his sort of Irish, you know, family background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I, I felt that, you know, not that I'm Zelig, But I felt like I like to fall in, like I grew up in a great melting pot place and time. Miami, Florida in the 70s, 60s and 70s. I went to a great melting pot high school, which drew from all these different areas of the town. So we had the um, Cubans who had settled sort of in Calle Ocho, uh, who had come over, you know, in the first wave. And then we had the African Americans who sort of settled around Coconut Grove. We had the old money wasp people from the old Money Gables, we had the New Ro- nouveau riche Jews, and they all went to the same school. Mm. So in seventh grade, I had gone, not intentionally, but this was just the state of affairs in the 60s, it was a, it was a segregated school, they all were, right? Every school was segregated. Um, uh, that's just the way it was, there was no integration at the time, this was early 60s, mid 60s. Yeah. And then right around fourth grade, we integrated, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I am struggling to
1: believe that I'm with somebody of my age who lived through that.
0: It was very, very light. Uh, you know, segregation light. Segregation light. Oh. By that I mean, I didn't grow up in a, a Georgia or Alabama. Yeah, 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 I grew yeah, up yeah. in Miami, that. which but was
1: still there was a there was a segregation. Listen. Here's right? what it was. It
0: was the subtle, horrible segregation of the of the pretend liberals yeah right so you know Miami at the time I, I was sort of New York South the rest of the state wasn't the rest of the state was very southern rednecky but Miami was like, you know a lot of snowbirds who had moved mm. down
1: it was Gloria Estefan
0: <clears throat> no that was later oh sorry this is 60s. No, Gloria. Gloria was, Gloria was just a, a twinkle in her parents' eye. Um, yeah, probably hadn't even come over from Cuba yet, or they were in the first wave. Right. And so then it became sort of New York South and Havana North, and that became Miami, right? But, um, yeah, so it was segregated. And then fourth grade we integrated uh, the school. You know, some African Americans came in. And then in seventh grade, when I moved to junior high, our designated junior high was sort of, I don't want to use the word inner city, but it was in, uh, uh, you know, sort of the African-American part of town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would be considered um, that. Urban?
1: Is that the word?
0: Yeah, Miami's kind of a weird place because it's, it's, such, it's such a spread out, like L.A. Okay. It's a bunch of suburbias put together. But, you know, it was sort of um, a less affluent part of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the people from my school did not go, even though that's where they were supposed to go. Really? They went to private school. Now, I would say 90% of the students from my elementary school did not go to George Washington Carver Junior High, which is where we were supposed to go in seventh grade. And what was that um, like for you? Well, my parents are were, uh, as you say, they're, they're they're dead now. That's why so I can waited. See
1: whatever I like. No,
0: because that's why I wrote the book. I'm
1: actually here for a how-to. So go on. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so, um, you know, they were old-school New York. Jewish, lefty.
1: Dad ran an educational bookstore.
0: Text bookstore. Right. Yeah, yeah, and my mom worked there too. Okay, uh, they were both—they'd um, both gone to law school, both dropped out of law school to run this bookstore, which became very successful right. s- for 60 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, servicing the students of the University of Miami and and various community colleges. But they were old school lefties. Uh, you know, probably socialists. Uh, um, uh, big supporters of unions. Big supporters of civil rights. Big supporters of. It's law great to grow up with such strong oh, fantastic. opinions. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, that's what. I mean, listen, that's what made me whatever I am today is, right. is my parents and my, my older brother. You know, they're all really smart people. And so I would sit around the uh, dinner table. We didn't sit there and watch Wheel of Fortune. We talked. And they would talk about issues of the day, and, and I would just struggle to keep up because they're really smart people. And, uh, you know, you want a seat at the table. So the only way you're gonna get a seat at the table, as the uh, truck rumbles by our beautiful studios here, um, you know, is to have ideas. And so I became, somebody who wanted to have ideas, and so the only way you can get ideas is to read and to get input of information and sort of, you know... We,
1: you, Could you, you please tell people that on the Twitter sphere today
0: uh, Yeah.
1: the only way to get information is to read... To have
0: an opinion is uh, to, to read bit, and, and to get an information, an information and to process it, yes, yeah. and, and then move it out and, and to form it into a, a, an idea. And you had to, have, to be informed, and to be
1: passionate yes. is to win the game.
0: Yes, really. And you had to have strong opinions at the dinner table to get your voice heard. But you mm. want, and you wanted to sort of, you wanted to run with that crowd. Yes. Yeah. So that's what sort of made me want to be a guy with ideas and, mm. and care about it. We're going all over the place here, but basically, you so know, I went to Carver. I hope you
1: don't mind, but I mean, that's what this is about. I know? love it.
0: The, 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 that's the, how I go.
1: The, the, <laughs> the podcast isn't called Take Fountain by Chance. Right. This is what what particularly fascinates me is uh, people's journey Um, because particularly for many younger people that I've met and mentored and I know that this will be the same for you, I'm not assuming, but uh, that uh, when you're young you have an anticipation that your life is going to follow (laughs) a very very arrow kind of timeline that you make a decision to do something, ergo you do it, a few little things get in your way but overall you overcome. And then as you go through life, you learn about things like resilience and hardship and suffering and questioning yourself and questioning others and all of those things, which ultimately make for a a great journey.
0: You are making me laugh only because you are basically Taking the words out of my brain and into my mouth. This is something that I talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, as uh, as you say, we get to a certain place in our lives, you know. And I've been very lucky, uh, so I've been asked to speak in schools and colleges, and, and I go around, and you know, I have two college-age children as well, and I see a lot of the, among their peers that there's this very linear view of life. Mm. I'm going to go to this school, and I'm going to get this degree, which is going to get me this job, which is going to make me happy, and life is going to work out. Clearly, that's not the truth. Um, there's, as you say, there's trapdoors, there's pitfalls, there's curveballs, there's all kinds of things. And that's why I say that my life, I describe it as a zigzag life. If you chart my career, which we were kind of doing, uh, it's, it's, what, and if you, if you had told me literally one day before uh, the Huffington Post was founded, that at some point in the next five years, I was going to be the editor of the largest um, digital news source in the world. I would've said, you're insane. That's not what I do, because that, that wasn't my thing. So I just
1: wanted to distill <laughs> down on that, because we could do the linear yeah. the linear thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, there is no linear.
1: <laughs> okay, so, so you have a notion in your head yeah. of who Roy Seacoff is. And then you get an offer to be the founding editor of the Huffington Post. Take me through that.
0: Yeah, well, there's a hundred zigzags before that. Oh, I'm you know? sure there are. So, just basically to give you a quick, I will give you the accordion version, which gets back to what you were asking before, right? At a certain point, I went on a few auditions. So, this is my early 20s, still thinking about performing. And I realized this is no, uh, and I say this was all love for my many, many actor friends. This is no life for a sane person. You know, this is not a life for a sane person because you are judged on the most harsh physical appearance terms on a daily basis, right? It's not like, hey, you know, you're not right for the part. It's like, you're not pretty enough. You're not handsome enough. Your nose is too big. You need to gain some weight and fix your teeth. And you get that fucking every day. This is not a good thing for your sanity, right? And so I realized, hey, I still wanted to be a performer, but I thought, this is not the way I'm going to do this. I'm going to create my own shit. I'm going to write my own scripts. I'm going to direct my own things. I'm going to put myself in it.
1: And this is still 30 years ago. Yeah,
0: this is. Because they
1: talk a lot about producing your own content now, but this is 30 years ago. 35 years
0: ago, yeah, yeah, Okay. And so so I was like, okay, I got smart. I'm I'm not going to do that. Uh. At least when you're writing, you're still being judged, but it's one step removed. We hate your script. It's not, we hate you. You know, So I decided performing wasn't for me. And so I started writing, and that took on many forms. Uh, I fell into being a freelance journalist for a while. I became a producer at the network that eventually became E. Uh, you know, got into video producing, which was sort of part of why I went to film school. I still liked all that visual stuff and editing. And um, then I decided to become a screenwriter. And so I had a career as a screenwriter for eight years, and it was a very... You know, good uh, middle class uh, um, career as a screenwriter.
1: In your book, you talk about um, a script that you pitched to Seinfeld.
0: No, that it, it seems like that, but that actually wasn't what what happened. Um, I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the script that I put in there. Yeah. 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 Yes. I never actually pitched it, I just wrote it. Um, yeah, uh, what happened was, one of the stories in the, in the book is about uh, me um, figuring out what to do with my father's porn collection after he dies. Yes. And it reminded me of a thing that had happened to me when a friend of mine, who shall remain nameless to protect the innocent and the guilty, was having his girlfriend move in with him. And he said, I gotta get rid of my porn, but I don't wanna throw it away, can I give it to you to hold in case it doesn't work out with the girl. The keeper she, of the porn. The keeper of the collection. Right. So I thought this was really funny. And coming on the heels of the, you know, the very famous Seinfeld masturbation episode, The Contest, which is one of the most famous Seinfeld episodes ever, where they're you know, having the contest, I thought, well, this is right in the same wheelhouse, right? What if some guy, like my friend, asks Jerry to keep his porn collection? But of course, it's much better than the shit that the guy gave me. This yeah. is like this is like a genius porn yep, collection. Yep, yep. So I wrote an episode of Seinfeld, a spec, a spec script called uh, "Keeper of the Collection." Okay, uh, but I never showed it to anybody because that was what I was doing in those days. I was doing a lot of things that I never showed to people. Um, which so
1: screenwriter for eight screenwriters years. Screenwriters
0: for eight years, and that was you know uh, frustrating as hell because nothing got made. And so uh, I felt like an architect. What were you
1: living off at that stage?
0: Oh, no, I was making a lot of money. It just never got made. Really? Oh. You know, there's the development world. Yeah. So I was getting paid quite well, um, but nothing was getting made. So it's like an architect who only does blueprints. Oh. They good. never make your b- building. That must be soul destroying. It very is. It, it, Did you
1: have those conversations with yourself often that was like, what am I doing?
0: You mean. Every day? Yeah. Every morning? Yeah. Every night? Existential dread? Yes, constantly. Like, what the hell am I doing? Is this what I should be doing? And that's, you know, it's a soul sapping. And I went, I I became progressively dumber over the course of the eight years by, you know, because you you meet executives and they say things like, we get it. But they won't get it. You know, fly over country, the middle America. Oh, you know, don't.
1: The, I hate it. It's yeah. the they. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I want to put them on a bus and send them out to realize that they're just like us. Yes.
0: And so my first script was really smart and it was a biting social satire like Network. Right. And, uh, and by the end, I was writing the stupidest, most moronic stuff possible uh, because that's what the that's what What they were asking for so you know at at that time American Pie had just been a big hit you know some guy fucking a pie and I was like hey I could I could have him fuck a Danish or something you know whatever I you know so I was writing really stupid shit because that's what that's what the business brings you to you offer them good stuff and they go we don't want that but here's this really stupid thing would you do that and so I got progressively dumber and more frustrated and uh, long story short I kind of hit a uh, uh, not a wall but a a little, um, a dip, there was a dip in my career, brought on by myself. Uh,
1: And by this stage you would have been married with one or two?
0: One, yes, so what had happened was I had gotten married and we had had our first child and I loved it, absolutely adored it, Uh, and I just was really enjoying being a dad, and what happened was as show business being this wonderful, magical, fucked up thing that it is, I got paid for two things I didn't have to do. Okay, so this is, because when you are a screenwriter, you often get step deals. Okay. So you, do, you you owe them three drafts, or you owe them two drafts and a polish, or something like that. Yeah. So on one of them, the executive got fired, and nobody there wanted to work on the project anymore, so they paid me for the, because I had the contract, so they just paid me for the second draft, which I didn't have to do. And then there was another one where I was working with a, an actor, and the actor's movie bombed, and they didn't want to be in business with the actor anymore, so they paid me for that. So I had a nice chunk of change, mm. and I said, you know what? all this I'm going to take a break and I'm just gonna hang out with my wife and kid and adore this wonderful time that's never going to be back again you know so I took a year off and I didn't like do nothing but I didn't really like I, I wrote treatments or I wrote ideas or outlines and
1: of, and of course the headspace of that is this in hindsight we know it's a year off yeah but at the time it's not it's it, it can be an uncertain length or
0: I, will, I lived my life very much by, I called it living on the come. By that I mean, uh, so I never, I was always playing for the next thing, right. the bigger thing. Yeah. So let's say I made, let's just pick numbers. Let's say I made 100000 So I did the math. I'm spending $10,000 a month. So I've just bought myself 10 months of living and trying to roll the dice of course. on yeah. the big thing, mm-hmm. right? At the big spec script that's going to sell for a million dollars and change my life or whatever the thing is.
1: Because that's there.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's what, that, well, that's the truth of this town. Yeah. This town doesn't live off the people who actually do stuff. This town lives off the dreamers. It's the classes for the people who want to learn to be writers. It's the headshot people. It's all these things. It's Absolutely. this entire...
1: That's actually a bigger industry. Oh yeah. Than
0: anything else that's, and they're dang- and they're. And that's why, be. in some ways, variety. Loved it. But at the time, Variety was like sort of like your dealer, your junkie. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. group, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+. plus. dealer that was injecting in your veins cuz you'd wake up and you'd read unknown sells script for a million dollars and you go, "Well, that could be me." And this was the spec. Why not me? Right. And this All was the that. spec. Script. Give me a
1: fridge magnet. <laughs>
0: yes. And this was the spec script era yeah. where, you know, people were rolling the dice. Shane Black was selling scripts for 2 million dollars. Joe Westerhouse was selling scripts for 3, 4 million dollars, you know. Ooh, and it was like ooh. this was this was the game, you know. And so that's how I looked at it. And I was always doing things like that. Came close a couple times. Had you know, had a guy on the phone. You know, if so and so wants to do it, I'll give you two million dollars. Oh my God! And then so and so didn't want to do it. He picked something else, and somebody oh. else got the two million dollars. You know, once once again, I thought it was a meritocracy. It's not. This I is know,
1: what... but this is when you're writing down lines like a hundred lines. I'm lucky I don't take
0: drugs. Yes.
1: I'm lucky I don't <laughs> take drugs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and,
0: and you realize, you know, what a, you know. What you realize, and this week, this is what became ultimately very frustrating to me, was it's an incredibly subjective arena, right? I mean, there's no this script, that script. There's no objective reality to say this is better than that. It's t- did you make it's t- a decision
1: to move away from it, or did an opportunity to present itself right. that did that for so you? So what
0: happened was I always compared it to I wanted to be a runner. Who raced against five other guys and the fastest guy won, as opposed to an ice skater, where the Russian judge kept giving me a three. You know, it's like, well, well that's not, you know, that's subjective. It's not objectively who's the fastest. It's who had the artistic interpretation that you, for whatever reason, judged. better, right, okay. that's the problem with really this cool. this business, right? So, at, so after my year, I, as a screenwriter, I had always done one of two things. So you go out and you pitch, right? And they either buy the pitch, which you then write, or they go, you know what? We don't really like that pitch, but we've got this piece of crap that we've already paid for that we would like you to rewrite and make better. And so that was my career. I would do one of these and one of those. And for eight years, that's what I did. I rewrote scripts, I I pitched original ideas, and, and you know, that's how it worked. And it was always quite good, and I would try to write something for myself, and then if I needed the money or the job, I would take a rewrite job, you know? You're listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. Well, after I came back from my year off, the business had changed without me knowing it. And the middle class had sort of been uh, decimated. They were still willing to pay the top dog a million dollars a week because he'd won an Academy Award, so you can't be wrong if you say yes to that. Or the kid just coming out of film school, $75,000. But my quote was around $200,000, and they were like, why would we give him 200? He hasn't gotten anything made, right? And so I came out there pitching again, better stuff than I pitched before, stuff that absolutely would have sold the year before and nothing. And not only was I not selling it, I wasn't getting the, hey, we don't want that, but how about this? Right. And that lasted for like four or five months. That's scary. And I started going, hey, that's kind of different. And uh, adding Jeopardy, to our little drama my wife was pregnant with our second child and so we were getting towards the end of my health care you'd hit your inciting incident <laughs> <laughs> yes and i needed a job
1: right
0: and um we were about eight months pregnant at this point, and uh, I thought, man, I really need a job. So in between this, I worked with a bunch of guys. I worked on a TV show called TV Nation with Michael Moore. Michael Moore. And Fantastic experience, and all my buddies had gone out and got jobs and been working at great places, and many of them were telling me, come work with us. you know. But I liked being a screenwriter. I liked working at home mm. as opposed to being in an office. And, yeah. But at the time, I needed a job, and they said, hey, you know what, one of them was working for Bill Maher he said, hey, you know, you should come work, you know, work with Bill. So I said, okay. So I went in and I met them and they were like, hey, that's great, um, we wanna hire you. You can start in six weeks. And I said, no, I need a job now. I kinda pushed it to the end here. You know, I, and they said, well, we have two guys and we're not gonna renew their contract, but we have a salary cap, this is it. When they go, you can come in.
1: Right.
0: I said, dude, I, I, need, some, I need some money. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's going to have a baby. And uh, they said, well, Ariana Huffington has a project that she would like some help with from a comedy writer and smart person who knows politics and blah, blah, blah. You seem to fit that bill. How would you like to do that? And I said, I don't, I don't think I'd like that because um, at the time I didn't know her and all I knew was, you know, her husband's Senate run. And so uh, I saw her in a certain way because I didn't know her as yeah, we all put people in little. Of course we do. It's easier to
1: assume. And and I'll hold my finger and make a memory of that. Go on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, uh, I went and met Ariana, and she is the most charming person, and she's just delightful, and we had a two-hour conversation, nothing to do with the project. We talked about her kids, we talked about my kids, we talked about life, we talked about the world, and at the end of two hours, she said, I think this will work. And I said, what will work? I don't even know what we're talking about. And (laughs) she offered me, you know, basically an eight-week job to help with this project called the Shadow Conventions, which were uh, alternate conventions that were going to be run concurrent to the real political conventions, the Democrats and the Republicans. And it was a cool project. And during the day, there were speeches and panels and all this. And at night, there wanted to be an entertainment component with satire and music and stand-up. And that's what I was going to sort of write and produce. And, um, And so I said, oh, okay, let me think about it. And it's like in a movie. I walked out of her house, and the phone rang uh, in my pocket, the cell phone. This was a long time ago, so it was a flip phone. I opened the phone, and it was Bill Maher's uh, team, and they said, look, we're going to get rid of the guys you can start Monday. So I was like, hmm, can I think about it over the weekend? And the thing about working with Ariana was I could work at home. And I wanted to be there sort of for the last month of the pregnancy to help with my son and to, you know, help my wife through the the final stages of the pregnancy, whereas I would have to have been in an office, a new job, a new office, new hours. People. People. (laughs) Never being there, you know, never being home. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice. So I called up Ariana and I said, look, make it 12 weeks. Because it was an eight-week thing. Make it 12 weeks. Get me through having the baby and all that. And I'll do it. She said, okay. <laughs> and that 12 weeks turned into 17 years.
1: And that's how you became the founding editor.
0: Well, that's how I became Ariana's uh, partner in crime. Okay. And then, you know, Ariana's one of the great pot stirrers you know, that I've ever met. She's got stuff going. She's very dynamic. She's got five or six things happening. And so I kind of just after the 12 weeks, she said, you know, we liked each other. She liked working with me. I liked working with her. She had 10 other things going on. And she said, you just want to keep doing it? And I was like, yeah, because after all those years of showbiz, committees, morons, people saying, you know, we get it, but they won't. Ariana was the opposite. She was like, be as smart as you could possibly be. You know, if I wrote a joke, wow. yeah, if I wrote a joke for her that, you know, because she made all these appearances and she was on TV shows all the time, you know, so I'd write lines for her and stuff yeah. like that. And I'd go, hey, look, five percent of the people are gonna get this joke, but those five percent are going to fucking love it. She'd go, great, let's do the joke. You know, right. She loved that. Be as smart as you can be, the, be the best you you can be, you, use all of your brain, not small parts of your brain, no, five, no, no pie fucking You know, necessary. You know? Yeah. So I was like digging this, and I only had to please one person, not a committee of people. Plus, uh, in retrospect, and I say this without any, uh, I don't mean it negatively, I went a little crazy. Because in that first six months where I was working with Ariana, uh, we had our second child. Uh, I don't know, are you a mom or...?
1: Uh, no, no, don't hold it against me. Yeah, I
0: don't. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't at all. It was nothing that I ever thought was going to be a badge of honor that I needed. But for me, uh, the second child was really much harder than yeah. the first. Yeah. Uh, not because of her, uh, not because of the, the, just having two. You couldn't divide and conquer. It couldn't be like, you are exhausted. Go take a shower. I'll take the baby. Now it's like, well, I got to take the baby. You take the, the toddler. And it was, it was very difficult. So, had a baby had a new job, bought my first house, because we didn't have enough room, and my dad had open heart surgery, all within four months. Those were, any one of those things can kind of blow your mind. Absolutely,
1: they're at the top.
0: Right, so you have all four of those at the same time, and I kind of went, okay, the only way I'm gonna get through this is if I put my head down and work my ass off, and not have all the existential questioning that I have all Am the time. Am I doing
1: the right thing? Right. Is
0: this right? Should I be doing that? Yeah, Should yeah, I go yeah, back to the yeah, screenwriting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this right? Is this wrong? Am I walking away from just something? Just do it. Just do it. Just put your head down and, and work. Right. Right? So I just put my head down and worked. And then I looked up and a couple years had gone by and I'd kind of gotten used to not living on the come, as we talked about with the screen, because I got yes. you know, to check every two weeks. So I kind of, hey, this is good. You know, I kind of got used to that, right? Yeah. I didn't want to go back to the, you know, living on the come life. And then, um, plus Ariana was a fantastic person to work with and knew everybody, and I thought, you know what, we'll eventually get back around to where I wanted to be. Because Ariana, you know, liked movies and I thought, well, why don't we write a movie together? Yes. And, you know, instead of me being the guy, I could be the guy with you who knows everybody. And, you know, so I thought that was my, my plan. Mm. That was my, and it wasn't uh, a secret plan. She knew that was my plan, you know. We'll do some of that and we'll do some of that. She was like, great. She said, Ariana's very open to all kinds of things. Yes. And so then 2004 happened. Uh, were you here at the time? No. Roger. Yeah. strike? No. Uh, George Bush wins re-election. Oh. Beats John Kerry. In, in, in a very disturbing election uh, where the war hero was painted as a coward, swift boating, and the coward who basically you know, was doing drugs and went AWOL and never really reported to duty mm. was the war hero. And somehow this shit worked. Right? And even though the Iraq war was going badly and all you know, the bad things that had happened, um, he won re-election. And there was a collective WTF, even though that didn't exist at the time, like, what the fuck happened yeah, yeah. amongst progressives across the country, particularly in, in Hollywood? And there was kind of this post-mortem period where people were going, how the fuck did that happen? You know. Sidebar: We're currently saying it. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's uh, that's that's another episode. We we have to take fountain and fun, but uh, all the way, all the way, all the way. Uh, So anyway, people got together, and one of the things they talked about was that this messaging machines that the Republicans had built over a 30-year period needed to be counteracted. But how could we do that quickly? And the internet, which wasn't new, but was newly rising up as a media force. Mm. Uh, Howard Dean had raised a lot of money um, using the internet and people were like, "Yeah, the internet could be a way that we could truncate that 30 years into, you know, a shorter period and counteract this messaging machine. And that was the basic fuel that fired the idea of the Huffington Post, what became the Huffington Post. And at that time, You know, we were going to create this uh, news aggregator with a progressive point of view. And Ariana's idea, which was let's bring all these wonderful people who have great ideas but don't have an online presence. Yes. You know. Mike Nichols and David Mamet and Nora Ephron and Larry David. You know these people didn't have time to be writing. This was before there was there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. Yes, you know, none of this I crap. Remember. So now, like in those days, you'd have to write something. Now, yeah, you know, it's 140 characters. You know, or now it's 280. But you know, you, you can. Everybody is their own writer. Everybody's their own. And
1: everybody has a um, their own platform. Fabulous sense of self-importance.
0: Yes. So anyway, the idea for the HuffPost came about. And Ariana said, you know, well, you'll be the, uh, the founding editor. And I said, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I liked all the stuff. We had just sold a TV show. Right. Uh, to, to FX. Okay. And uh, I, she was going to be, we were both going to be co-executive producers. I was going to write it. She was going to be the host. Um, and I said, well, I'll just work on that. You know, because I didn't think the Huffington Post was going to be... Be, well... Who who could? Who could have known? And so I said, you go do that. I'll do the other thing. We'll meet in the middle. You know, she said, no, 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 no. This is what we're doing, and you'll be the editor, and that's what you're going to do. And I said, I don't want to. <laughs> 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 and she said, uh, that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm going to do it. You're going to do it with me, and that's what we're going to do. And I said, okay. And... Who knew? Right. Yeah. So it was basically four of us, and we started it four people in Ariana's living room. And uh, when I left, it was like 800 people in Mm -hmm. 16 countries. And most amazing journey, most amazing ride uh, of my life. Fantastic, and and uh, you know super empowering, and, and not, that's the short version. The, the long version was it was a lot of hard work. We busted our ass, we worked at 18 hours a day, many, 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 many days. We made a lot of right decisions. We were very lucky, as all successful people have to be, mm. uh, you know, at the timing of it and all that stuff. And, um, you know, six years after we launched, we sold the company to AOL for $315 million. And um, and then that enabled us to superpower the HuffPost's growth, and then we—that's when we went international. And then that's what allowed me to create HuffPost Live, which was our live streaming network, which yeah. we were doing 60 hours of live programming a week. Yes. and that was the best experience of my life uh, for me because it was sort of. Something I created, uh, co-created with a guy named Gabe Lewis. I ran it. I was the president of it. I had a hundred people working directly under me. In um, a blast. Just, yeah. just a blast.
1: It's, the story confirms something that that I say a lot, um, and that is, uh, when I when I was making the decision to come to America, because I literally, after my family died, I went to New York on vacation in 2010 and got discovered by a talent producer from NBC. Who walked up to me and said who are you you look like you're someone and i said well you know i'm someone but <laughs> like at that stage i was the i was the gps voice in 75 percent of cars around the world i'd done radio and tv i'd just started acting done a little bit of stand-up um but i i followed that and so you know crazily i moved over here when i was writing down you know because i was no i was not uh, 20 I'm writing down my list of the pros and cons of all the rest of it. And I went back in time to all the major decisions I'd made and and what I had to do to achieve the end result. And what I realized was that it was never my decision, it was always a person. You've got to do all the prep work, but it's always someone that steps in. And you've just confirmed yes. that.
0: Yes, no one tells you, this was, a, my parents were not you know, they were second generation or first generation Americans, right? Their parents had come over from Russia, and then, so they were first generation Americans. They were born here. Uh, and they didn't know how the system worked in the sense, you know, my, they never told me, it's who you know. And you know what? It's who you know. and that's just flat out the truth. Uh, You have to have talent. Once the door opens, you have to be able to walk through it. There's all that stuff. I'm not saying that that's not part of it and it's all just random luck, but it really is. Mm. Who did you meet? When I was in college, I remember we had a Friday night, they called it uh, Friday afternoon, they'd bring in speakers. And I remember we were sitting in uh, one of these things, I forget who the speaker was, he said, turn to your right, turn to your left. Stay in the business long enough, one of those people will hire you. And that was sort of the way of saying, it is who you know, and it is about networking. And of course, you wanna hire people that you like and are friends with, and that's how I got uh, a number of jobs. Uh, I mean, just look at that path. I got the job at movie time, which became E because of a guy I went to college with, who got hired to sort of be the on-air guy, and he wanted somebody to write and produce for him, so they brought me in. And then, uh, you know, TV Nation, Uh, I'd met all those writer guys and they're the ones who brought me into Mar which connected me to Ariana. It is. It's how it goes. And so that's why when my kids were trying to decide um, where to go to school and I said, you know what? It's not this sort of, well, I'm going to be a social climber and I'm going to go meet. I said, go to a place where you're going to meet a lot of dynamic, creative, talented people who are going to do shit in their lives. And when they're doing shit at some point they'll go, hey, you know what? I need some help I would like somebody with your talent to help me with my thing mm. or vice versa mm. right and this is
1: part of this emotional IQ that we have to develop an ability to think strategically mm-hmm. be creative recognize our uniqueness and associate with other people who support us and we support them there you go now you
0: know done I often do it right here so basically <laughs> during the time I was always writing To get back to your original question, I've always saw myself as a writer. For a while there, I saw myself more as an editor. You know, I was helping edit other people's stuff. Uh, I was writing stuff, you know, here and there, but it wasn't my main thing. And then I became an executive, and I was sort of, you know, building things and running things and, you know, making decisions. Signing Uh, off. Signing off, (laughs) yes. I was the the salt and pepper haired fellow (laughs) in the corner wearing the suit, because at HuffPost Live, you know, we had a great team. They've all gone on to do fantastic things, and the average age was, I think, twelve. Uh, you know, of the people that I hired, so you needed the one guy in the corner who was, you know, wait a minute. He looks like a grown up. Yeah, he's a grown up. Let me go talk and complain to him. Hey, I'm pissed off. Oh, come talk to me. You know. Um, so then, um, to get back to the real crux of it, after where I met you. So then at a certain point near the end, what I didn't know was the end, but would eventually be the end of my HuffPost run, Ariana said to me, you know what? Cause I was, d- I was dabbling in on-camera stuff, just doing interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, if a, this was the pro, you, 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 you're, you're of the, uh, the British, uh, I know you're Australian, but the, 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 the monarchy. So what is it called when the king gets to choose and has sex with the person, uh, the, the wife, when they get married? There's a there's a name for that.
1: I have no okay. idea. There's a name
0: for it. I, I should write it down.
1: That's so good. I love the translation. Remember in Braveheart. Of the...
0: Remember in Braveheart. Yeah. The king comes and he, and then Nell doesn't want him to stop his wife, and that becomes a whole thing. Oh and my, that's, yeah. Yeah. So there's a name. Okay, for that. Okay. Okay. Primogeniture something, right? Oh yes, primogenitor. I mean something like yes,
1: that. Yes. 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 Uh,
0: the right to stop I think, yeah. is the is oh the translation. Gosh. Anyway, so. Um, I, I had the right, as the president of HuffPost Live, to every now and then go, hey, you know what? I fucking love Robert Duvall. I'm gonna interview him. Right, right, you know? right, okay. Uh, you know, oh, we got an interview with Jon Stewart. I'm gonna do it, you know. So I, I did some of that, and we won awards, and, and things were going great. And Sariana so said, you know, you're so good on camera. You, you, you should do more of that. Yep. And she, she knew that I would obviously written for Michael Moore. Mm. I'd been an on-camera performer on that show as well, on Michael yep. Moore's show. And she's like, you should, you should get back to that part of it. you know. Uh, so I created the HuffPost Show mm-hmm. and ended up executive producing it and writing a lot of it. Um, and so I was getting back to my writing and performing roots Yes. and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. That's when we brought you in to do the voiceover on one of the segments that I wrote yes. uh, along with my team. And um, so for the last four years, I was commuting from Los Angeles to New York on a weekly basis. So on Monday, I would fly to New York and I would work all week and then Friday night I'd fly back to LA, be with my family for two days and then do it again. And I did that 35 weeks a year for four years which is insane, it's bonkers. And it takes uh, a toll on your uh, psyche and your body. And you know, and uh, I loved it while I was doing it. Mm. And in many ways, it was incredibly fulfilling because I got the best of both worlds. During the week, it was dynamic. I was in New York, 100 people on the streets, all great. And then I'd come home and ride my bike on the beach Mm. on the weekend and head back, you know. But it it, it takes a bit of a toll. Mm. And so my daughter had two years left of high school. And I was always there for the big stuff, but I felt I wasn't there on the day-to-day stuff. And I really felt that I was missing something important. And so I decided to pull the ripcord, and after 17 years with Ariana and 11 years with HuffPost, tremendously successful, really great, I decided to just take the leap into the unknown and stop abusing my body. Uh, I could tell you the long story, but basically two things happened, one, I went to my doctor for a checkup, he said, you're in fantastic shape, but I would like you to stop flying so much and you know get your circadian rhythms on something that was a little bit normal. And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking of taking a year off. What do you think of that? And he goes, could you do that? And I said, I think I could. He goes, well, here's my professional opinion. Why the so fuck would I- you not do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. Uh, And then the other thing was, I I had an experience where I drove my daughter to school one day, which I rarely did because I wasn't here during the week that often. And we had this wonderful conversation in the car, she was stressed about something, I gave her some fatherly advice, it actually helped. She felt a lot better about things, she got out of the car and said, Dad, I'm so so glad that you were here this morning, you really helped me a lot. And she got out of the car and I just started crying. I'm going to start crying now. And she started crying and I just thought, I can't miss these things like i'm here for the big stuff but i'm missing these little moments and i'm never going to get that back so that's when i decided to leave
1: your life is in such shiny color do you know that
0: please pray pray tell i'd like to hear more
1: well i don't know we're kind of running out of time but (laughs) you know there's this thing that you don't, um, you don't hide from anything. And you've had these moments. Many people, and like you, I must have interviewed 100,000 people in my, in my working life. And that's not even counting the people at Ralph's that I talk to.
0: <laughs> of course, important.
1: Right? But many people, it's very easy in hindsight to create a narrative that fits their current existence. I can pick those people apart for their lack of authenticity in a heartbeat and when I'm producing my own shows, I won't have them on the show. Because nobody wants that. Nobody wants somebody who's come up with a fridge magnet of their life and wants to inspire people. Your story is the shiny, colourful thing that people take something away from because you can. This is going to be a Listen Twice podcast, I think, because it's so easy to identify where you had a fork in the road and you took it. The fork, both forks. You went, you know, and that's so exciting. As we are running out of time, um, the book is hysterical. Um, There are so many funny things in it that I wanted to talk about today, but stuff it, you just have to buy the book,
0: um, which is called? It's called Lax Self-Control, True Stories I Waited Until My Parents Died to Tell.
1: We're going to have a link on the page so that people can buy it. Great. Internationally, because we have an international audience, where does one Amazon.
0: Okay. Amazon all across the globe uh, is the best place. It's available in hardback, paperback. Kindle and audiobook, and I took I took a, a you know th- I pictured you in my mind as I did the audiobook myself.
1: Oh, oh yes, that's
0: wonderful. I, re- I recorded it, and uh, that for was for a
1: minute there though, I thought you were going <laughs> to offer me a job.
0: Well, you know, it would have been great. You're you're my second you're my second choice. It's not your book, but I, I I just thought you know because here's the thing these are all true stories from my life, mm. and that I don't know if we're all, all out of time, but that's why when I took a year off. Flashing back to that other year, I took a year off, hung out with my daughter, worked out, got sane again. Not that, you know, I, 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 I'd gotten a little crazy, just as just li- life was. Moved off will, the rough just edges. off the rough edges. Didn't do anything. No creative work on purpose. I felt I needed to remove myself from those 11 years at HuffPost and 17 years. Who was I outside of that? So I did nothing. Even if a creative idea came into my head, I, I banished it. Right. Not going to do it. And after a year, I decided, you know what? I'm a creative fella and I'd like to kind of get back to that and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I thought, you know, there's always those funny stories that you tell over beers or at night and you, know, you meet somebody new and you're telling each other the funny things and you know. And I thought, well, I've told those. I've sort of told those over the years so in that way I've edited them and polished them like you do a stand-up act and you know where the laugh is, you know where the laugh's not so you, you know, cut that crap out, that didn't work, you know, and punch that part up. And so I thought if I start with that since I've already told those stories let's see what they're like when I write them on paper right. and maybe through that process I will discover my voice and who my voice was outside of Hup Post, because mm-hmm. I'd spent so many years mm-hmm. and so that's what I did I started writing and it just poured out of me it was like a dam being burst you know because I had not done anything for a year and I just was on fire and I was just writing all the time, desperately trying to keep up with my brain, which was like the synapses were firing left and right. So I was just trying to have my fingers keep up with it. And I like writing. I actually like the process of writing. Many people don't. You know, there's a the famous expression, you know, uh, I hate writing, I love having written. But I actually like the process of playing with words mm-hmm. and sentences and mm-hmm. evocative images. And so that's what this book is, really. It was really this poured out of me. And I had two goals. And I think it relates back to what you were saying. And I appreciate what you said. Um, one was I wanted to be as funny as I was capable of being because I just wanted to be funny. Mm. I think we need a lot of that in this world, yeah. you know. Um, I thought it was really something that we, we all need more of, those laughs. And be as honest as possible.
1: Yeah.
0: That's something else we need.
1: They're the two things that struck me. Yeah. You've achieved it. I hope you sell a gazillion copies.
0: I, I I so appreciate that, and I've enjoyed talking with you very much. Thank you, Roy Seekoff. Absolutely. Down
1: by the book. The link is going to be on the page. Fantastic.
0: You've been listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.